Chapter 4 of The Birth of Tragedy or Hellenism and Pessimism by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by William Hausman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 4. Concerning this naive artist, the analogy of dreams will enlighten us to some extent. When we realize to ourselves the dreamer as, in the midst of the illusion of the dream world and without disturbing it, he calls out to himself, quote, it is a dream. I will dream on. End quote. When we must thence infer a deep inner joy in dream contemplation. When, on the other hand, to be at all able to dream with this inner joy in contemplation, we must have completely forgotten the day and its terrible obtrusiveness. We may, under the direction of the dream-reading Apollo, interpret all these phenomena to ourselves somewhat as follows. Though it is certain that of the two halves of life, the waking and the dreaming, the former appeals to us as by far the more preferred, important, excellent, and worthy of being lived, indeed, as that which alone is lived. Yet with reference to that mysterious ground of our being of which we are the phenomenon, I should, paradoxical as it may seem, be inclined to maintain the very opposite estimate of the value of dream-life. For the more clearly I perceive in nature those all-powerful art-impulses, and in them a fervent longing for appearance, for redemption through appearance, the more I feel myself driven to the metaphysical assumption that the verily existent and primordial unity as the eternally suffering and self-contradictory requires the rapturous vision the joyful appearance for its continuous salvation which appearance we who are completely wrapped in it and composed of it must regard as the verily non-existent i e as a perpetual unfolding in time space and causality in other words as empiric reality. If we therefore waive the consideration of our own reality for the present, if we conceive our empiric existence and that of the world generally as a representation of the primordial unity generated every moment, we shall then have to regard the dream as an appearance of appearance. Hence, as a still higher gratification of the primordial desire for appearance. It is for this same reason that the innermost heart of nature experiences that indescribable joy in the naive artist and in the naive work of art, which is likewise only an appearance of appearance. In a symbolic painting, Raphael, himself one of these immortal naive ones, has represented to us this depotentiating of appearance to appearance, the primordial process of the naive artist and at the same time of Apollonian culture. In his transfiguration, the lower half with the possessed boy, the despairing bearers, the helpless, terrified disciples, shows to us the reflection of eternal primordial pain, the sole basis of the world, the appearance 
here is the counter-appearance of eternal contradiction the father of things out of this appearance then arises like an ambrosial vapor a vision like new world of appearances of which those wrapped in the first appearance see nothing a radiant floating in purest bliss in painless contemplation beaming from wide open eyes here there is presented to our view in the highest symbolism of art that apollonian world of beauty and its substratum the terrible wisdom of silenus and we comprehend by intuition their necessary interdependence apollo however again appears to us as the apotheosis of the principium individuationis in which alone the perpetually attained end of the primordial unity its redemption through appearance is consummated he shows us with sublime attitudes how the entire world of torment is necessary that thereby the individual may be impelled to realize the redeeming vision and then sunk in contemplation thereof quietly sit in his fluctuating bark in the midst of the sea this apotheosis of individuation if it be at all conceived as imperative and laying down precepts knows but one law the individual i e the observance of the boundaries of the individual measure in the hellenic sense apollo as ethical deity demands due proportion of his disciples and that this may be observed he demands self-knowledge and thus parallel to the aesthetic necessity for beauty there run the demands quote, know thyself end quote, and quote, not too much end quote while presumption and undueness are regarded as the truly hostile demons of the non-apollonian sphere hence as characteristics of the pre-apollonian age that of the titans and of the extra-apollonian world that of the barbarians because of his titan-like love for man prometheus had to be torn to pieces by vultures because of his excessive wisdom which solved the riddle of the sphinx oedipus had to plunge into a bewildering vortex of monstrous crime thus did the delphic god interpret the grecian past so also the effects wrought by the dionysian appeared titanic and barbaric to the apollonian greek while at the same time he could not conceal from himself that he too was inwardly related to these overthrown titans and heroes indeed he had to recognize still more than this his entire existence with all its beauty and moderation rested on a hidden substratum of suffering and of knowledge which was again disclosed to him by the dionysian and lo apollo could not live without dionysus the titanic and the barbaric were in the end not less necessary than the apollonian and now let us imagine to ourselves 
how the ecstatic tone of the dionysian festival sounded in ever more luring and bewitching strains into this artificially confined world built on appearance and moderation how in these strains all the undueness of nature in joy sorrow and knowledge even to the transpiercing shriek became audible let us ask ourselves what meaning could be attached to the psalmodizing artist of apollo with the phantom harp sound as compared with this demonic folk-song the muses of the arts of appearance paled before an art which in its intoxication spoke the truth the wisdom of silenus cried woe woe against the cheerful olympians the individual with all his boundaries and due proportions went under in the self-oblivion of the dionysian states and forgot the apollonian precepts the undueness revealed itself as truth contradiction the bliss born of pain declared itself but of the heart of nature and thus wherever the dionysian prevailed the apollonian was routed and annihilated but it is quite as certain that where the first assault was successfully withstood the authority and majesty of the delphic god exhibited itself as more rigid and menacing than ever for i can only explain to myself the doric state and doric art as a permanent war-camp of the apollonian only by incessant opposition to the titanic barbaric nature of the dionysian was it possible for an art so defiantly prim so encompassed with bulwarks a training so warlike and rigorous a constitution so cruel and relentless to last for any length of time up to this point we have enlarged upon the observation made at the beginning of this essay how the dionysian and the apollonian in ever new births succeeding and mutually augmenting one another controlled the hellenic genius how from out the age of bronze with its titan struggles and rigorous folk philosophy the homeric world develops under the fostering sway of the apollonian impulse to beauty how this naive splendor is again overwhelmed by the inbursting flood of the dionysian and how against this new power the apollonian rises to the austere majesty of doric art and the doric view of things if then in this way in the strife of these two hostile principles the older hellenic history falls into four great periods of art we are now driven to inquire after the ulterior purpose of these unfoldings and processes unless perchance we should regard the last attained period the period of doric art as the end and aim of these artistic impulses and here the sublime and highly celebrated artwork of attic tragedy and dramatic dithram presents itself to our view as the common goal of both these impulses whose mysterious union after many and long precursory struggles found its glorious consummation in such a child
which is at once Antigone and Cassandra. End of chapter 4. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.